You're listening to Yes to Employment, a podcast series that seeks to improve competitive integrated employment outcomes for transition-aged youth and young adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Today we talk with Julie Christensen, the Director of Policy and Advocacy at APSI, the Association of People Supporting Employment First. Additionally, Julie was the Project Director for the New York State Partnerships and Employment Project during the first round of PIE grants. We discuss the ways the COVID-19 crisis has impacted the employment of people with disabilities, from those who can't work owing to comorbidities associated with their disability, to people who have lost their jobs, to essential workers. Additionally, we discuss the effect on employment support personnel and services, but we also discuss ways that employment for people with disabilities might emerge stronger on the other side of this crisis. Christensen, you have a really deep background in employment for people with disabilities. Tell us about yourself and how you came to the role you have today. So it's an interesting question. My personal life and my career has had many twists and turns. Um, I was actually born in Boston, grew up in California, um, lived in New York for 25 years, lived in Iowa for a couple of years. Um, I'm now in the Maryland, D.C. area. Um, But I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. My father was a professor, um, was fortunate to have the opportunity to live abroad multiple times during my childhood. Um, And so I, I I've had an opportunity to see a lot, um, to to absorb a lot, and I think that gives me an opportunity to just kind of look at the world through multiple lenses. But um, I have to credit my Berkeley upbringing, um, growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and and specifically in Berkeley, uh, where fighting for social justice and equity is really part of the DNA, (laughs) um, so to speak. Um, I when I went to college, I wanted to do something to make the world a better place. I was interested in public service advertising, um, using the media for good (laughs) um, to the extent that you're able to do that. And so I I went to Syracuse University um, to study advertising. Um, But during those four years at Syracuse, I spent my summers in Boston, um, where my family is originally from, working at a day camp um, in a low income, very high crime area. Um, And I sort of credit those four years of the combination of my studying advertising um, during the school year and then spending my summer working with inner city youth um, as being sort of the beginning of kind of where I'm at now. Um, It certainly did change my career trajectory. I did graduate and work in advertising for several years, um, about eight years working for Saatchi and Saatchi International. Um, But I switched gears to social work. Um, My background is really in urban um, areas in adolescent mental health, uh, but did a lot of cross-systems work. Um, So a lot of the work we were doing was some combination of bringing education, government, uh, businesses, and and workforce, criminal justice, not-for-profit sector, philanthropy, bringing these different groups together um, to try to change outcomes um, for inner-city youth, and and honestly fell into disability, and and specifically disability employment by accident. Um, so, So again, my training as a social worker was and adolescent mental health, Um, but my cross-systems work um, was what led me to an opportunity to um, start to work in the disability employment space, Um, and I fell in love with the work, Um, quite honestly. I I have a nephew with a significant disability um, who was going through his own 
um, struggles and trying to figure out how to navigate the world and what he wanted to be when he grew up and, and all of the, uh, the issues around low expectations. Um, and so that was all kind of going on at the same time that I was really looking at, you know, where do I want my career to go and, and how can I spend my time doing something that's going to have an impact. Um, eventually decided that um, the systems change piece is really what I'm, I'm interested in. I wanted to do that at a higher level. Um, so went on to get a PhD uh, degree in health practice research. Um, and that research degree combined with my marketing experience has led me, I think, to where I am right now, which is really sitting in a space that I think of as translational policy. Um, so on one end, using data um, to drive advocacy, um, but also, and I think more importantly, um, doing the policy translation back to help advocates have the tools and, and information that they need in order to have an impact. Um, because I've really focused on disability employment uh, for the last 15 years or so, I, I got involved with APSI um, early on um, at, at the state level first, um, was a member of New York APSI for quite a while, um, then Iowa APSI when I moved there, um, ultimately joined the board of directors of APSI, and then the opportunity to apply for the director of policy and advocacy opened up and it's kind of the perfect job <laughs> for me bringing sort of all these pieces and parts together in in a in a unique way I think um, and so that's kind of where I'm at right now using this sort of combined skill set to look at how to really make an impact um, on disability employment um, because we have a lot of strategies we have a lot of work um, that's been done that's great um, but we haven't really moved the needle on outcomes in a very long time. Um, so just working in this space, hoping to make an impact. And you have some direct experience working with the Partnerships and Employment Project, correct? Yes, yes. Um, so I actually wrote the New York application. Um, I, I had a boss who said, sure, if you want to do this, go ahead. <laughs> we were very lucky at the University of Rochester when I was there um, to get that grant. And I led, um, led that as the project director for um, the full five years. I think we were around two of partnerships and employment, um, which was the, the larger cohort of, I think it was six states um, back in, when was that, 2000. 11 maybe. Um, and, and so prior to that, I'd been doing work, uh, sort of more micro work, um, specifically project search um, was was kind of my entry into this space, but we were able to, to build on that for our New York project and really look at um, that sort of multiple systems lens at how we bring folks together with a common goal of improving employment outcomes. So Instead of talking about the general issues, we're going to talk about the immediate crisis, which is COVID-19 and how that's affected people with disabilities in their employment. And it seems like there's a couple of different categories of consequences for people with disabilities. So I want to talk about each one in turn. Uh, first, um, people, people with disabilities are put in significant jeopardy by our failure to contain the spread of COVID-19. There's people with respiratory issues and other comorbidities who definitely should not work or take public transit or any of the things around work. What has the pandemic meant for them? So 
I think in general, we can, we can acknowledge that this has been a very difficult and scary time for everyone. Um, and it, it's a moving target. Um, so our, our ability to track kind of what's going on um, within different pockets um, has been difficult, but there, there are a couple of things that we know have happened, um, happened early on and remain a significant issue, especially for this particular um, group that you're um, referencing in this part um, of our discussion. Um, so early on, there was a lot a lot of information coming out quickly. Um, it was uncertain what the recommendations really were. Should we wear masks? Should we not wear masks? Is it okay if we go outside or not go outside? Is um, you know going to our programs going to be a safe thing to do or not? Um, and so just a lot of confusion in the early days, um, but also the lack of access to protective equipment. Um, was a significant factor early on. Um, one of the things that we are seeing um, and have seen but are, are continuing to see expand is the number of services that shut down in the early stages, particularly um, facility-based um, services. So day habilitation programs, for example, um, where many people with significant disabilities go um, during the day, which um, prior to COVID was a safe place to go. Um, but the, the concern around the spread of COVID made that um, impossible. And so, you know, really the, the shift back to st everybody stay at home um, has been really difficult for a lot of people, and per particularly for people with disabilities um, that are, are significant. You mentioned respiratory issues, um, mask wearing, and trying to figure out how to navigate that has been very difficult. Um, we've seen significant increases in feelings of isolation um, for people who are um, needing to stay home because of risk factors that make it unsafe to, to get out, um, even to the extent that the, the rest of the population is starting to do so. Um, and we're just, I think we're just scratching the surface on really understanding what all of this means um, in terms of, you know, the long term and where we move forward, but um, a lack of services, a lack of, you know, opportunity, um, increased isolation, these are all things that we're really concerned about. So we're also in the midst of a major unemployment crisis. So 17.8 million people are currently unemployed. The next affected group of people with disabilities are people who want to work and can do so at a lower risk level, but who have been laid off. How has COVID-19 affected people with disabilities who are now unemployed? So we have seen a pretty significant job loss. Um, and I will say that that's across the board. Um, for people with disabilities, it's been hard to tease out how much of that has been voluntary versus how much of that has been forced through layoffs or furloughs. Um, and, and we know that there is a mix of, of that happening. Um, in, in some cases, individuals choosing to be the group that gets laid off because of concerns for health reasons or lack of access to um, personal protective equipment. Um, and so it's a little bit difficult to, to really see where um, all of this has landed from, from a pure kind of data standpoint. But um, the good news, uh, if, if there's a, a silver lining to all of this, um, it does appear that the employment rate of people with disabilities, um, the, the decrease, I should say, in employment of people with disabilities has 
been relatively consistent with the pace of the general population. And, and so that is good news. I think early on there was a lot of concern that people with disabilities would be the first ones let go. Um, and we may or may not see that in the end, um, but from the data that we're looking at right now, um, that does not appear to be the case. And, and certainly as we've started to see things settle um, and to figure out which biz business sectors are growing, um, you know, in terms of, you know, the essential workforce um, versus job loss in sectors that have not rebounded and potentially are not going to rebound anytime soon. Um, it, it puts us in a unique situation of having to think about how to retrain potentially large numbers of individuals with disabilities who were employed prior to the pandemic, but in market sectors that may not um, rebound quickly. I'm, I'm thinking a lot of hospitality, um, for example, um, you know, that's an industry that's been particularly hard hit and we don't anticipate um, is going to bounce back, um, certainly not in the first, maybe even second wave of, of reopening. And, um, and so there are a lot, there are going to be a lot more people with disabilities who were in the workforce prior, who are now back in the job hunt, not to mention individuals who were able to work and were in the process of looking for jobs when this um, pandemic hit. Um, so, you know, I, I know we'll get to, to the impact on the employment services system, um, but here's where it's all kind of interrelated that, um, you know, we need to make sure that um, access to supports and services are, are remain in place um, because certainly there are jobs available and we are seeing people with disabilities fill those jobs even in the midst of this crisis, um, but certainly not at the extent that they could be um, if we had an adequate support system in place to help make that happen. The third group of people with disabilities are so-called essential workers. So many people with disabilities are employed in this category, from grocery store workers to hospitals and universities and distribution centers. And people are kind of ambivalent about this. Some people are grateful to not find themselves unemployed, and some people feel strong-armed into a, a job that they feel is too risky. How has this affected this group of people? So it's an interesting, I find the conversation around um, disability employment has had to really shift and we've had to ask ourselves some, some hard questions um, over the last four months or so that we've been in the midst of this crisis. I think, you know, we, on, on the positive side, um, we do see the very industries that you mentioned, you know, whether it's grocery, retail, distribution, healthcare, um, have been the very industries that have hired people with disabilities historically. Um, and so we've seen a lot of individuals with disabilities remain employed, which is a good thing. I think, you know, within that group, there have been significant changes in workforce practices. Um, so you know, new cleaning routines, having to use protective equipment in new ways. Um, and many people with disabilities are, are more than willing to make these changes, but might need help um, and don't necessarily have access to the same level of support or help that, that they might have, for example, through their job coaches um, because of just a shift in the service system and how services, services are delivered. Um, 
and so that that puts people with disabilities in a position of having to try to figure this all out on their own. Um, sometimes that has led to job loss. Um, certainly has led to a lot of anxiety and a lot of frustration. Um, so, you know, I think the positive from an employment first perspective is that we're, we're able to really showcase the ways in which people with disabilities have been and continue to be on the front line of our economy. I, I don't think it's exaggerating to say that our current economy um, in terms of the, the sectors that are open now and working um, would not be able to operate at full capacity if it weren't for people with disabilities being part of the mix of you know, who is delivering those services. And that's a shift in the way that we've normally um, talked about employment for people with disabilities when we think about more of a historical kind of a charity model or you know it's the right thing to do when in fact we're seeing people with disabilities really serve in an integral role. Um, that being said, I, I think your comment is is fair that there's there's the flip side of the conversation. What if I don't feel particularly safe? What if I don't have access to pers personal protective equipment? Um, you know, and perhaps I'm at higher risk than others, but I you know have to come to work. And and you know what does that mean? And and I think you know that's where we have to have some some hard conversations about what we mean when we talk about equity in the workplace. Um, because I think we start to, we start to kind of hedge the line of, um, do we continue to treat people with disabilities as you know, fundamentally different in the workplace, um, that sh they shouldn't have to work um, simply because they have a disability and they feel unsafe. Um, you know, my, my personal philosophy is, I think they f should have the same options as everybody else. Um, but, you know, I think these are really difficult conversations to have um, during this time. A final group of affected workers are support personnel. So employment agency people, um, job coaches and so on. How has the pandemic affected them and how has, in the way it's affected them, it affected people with disabilities and the availability of employment services? Yeah, it's an excellent question and it's all so interrelated, um, I would say. So APSI um, recently conducted a survey to try to, to understand this and, and we're certainly not the only ones that are looking at this. ANCOR um, and other organizations have been doing their own surveying um, to get a feel for what's happening in the service system, but um, specifically to employment, which is what um, APSI really is focused on, there's been a significant shift um, and we're still learning. So um, one of the things that we have found out is that at least as of a month ago, um, mid-June is when we collected our data, 43% of agencies um, that provide employment services had laid off um, staff, job coaches, job developers. Um, and when we asked based on the fiscal realities a month ago, um, what that was gonna look like in the long term, the anticipation was that 22% of um, those jobs would not be filled. 
um, because of fiscal concerns. Um, and so a 22% decrease in employment services, direct support professionals is significant. We, we had a direct support professional work crisis prior to the pandemic. And, and so to see these jobs um, be eliminated during a pandemic when they're most needed, but then to also um, hear from employment um, agency personnel that they, they don't anticipate being able to bring these folks back is hugely problematic. Um, there's a lot of reasons why this has happened, um, certainly in the early um, stages of, of just trying to adjust um, to the, the COVID reality, um, vocational rehabilitation and Medicaid dollars um, slowed down significantly. That's the, those are the funding streams that um, support job coaching and job development. Um, and so that, that had a lot to do with some of those early layoffs. Um, but the entire service system having to shift to how to do this remotely has also drastically changed the way things um, work. And so the impact on people with disabilities, um, and I think I wove some of this into some of the earlier answers, um, I think it cuts across all three of those groups that, that you talked about. Um, you know, whether you are someone who was not participating in the workforce prior and had no intention of doing so, there have been impacts on the types of services you've been able to um, receive during the pandemic. Um, but the other two groups, folks that were job seeking or already in the workforce um, and essential workers both um, faced the challenges of not having necessarily access to job coaches um, that they had before, um, you know, these really critical supports that helped to navigate just sort of the day-to-day -day of um, being an effective employee. Um, but also in switching to virtual supports, there's, there's a learning curve across the board. Um, there's a significant learning curve I, we're finding among job coaches, uh, among employment staff themselves in knowing how to use um, things like an iPhone or um, you know, FaceTime or, or whatever it is to try to connect with an individual that they support. Um, we anticipated um, actually that it would be individuals with disabilities that would struggle the most in this transition and have found that it actually um, is the reverse. People with disabilities seem to be more um, inclined and uh, able to use um, remote supports, but the service system itself is not necessarily prepared to be able to provide supports in that way. Um, so it has had a significant impact across the board, um, not just in loss of jobs, but in a completely different way that we even conceptualize providing services um, during this time and likely how it is going to be for the distant future. One of the things that has made this such a disaster has been our faltering response. A bunch of places that reopened are going to have to go back into lockdown. A bunch of workers who were rehired are going to be laid off a second time. How has the uncertainty and the flip-flopping affected people with disabilities? The uncertainty is very real. Um, and it's very real whether you're a person with a disability, a family member of a person with a disability, or a community member at large. Um, I, I think we collectively all recognize how little we seem to know and, and just when we feel like we're on the right track, 
um, things start to fall apart again. Um, and, you know, specific to employees with disabilities, I think we, we're not 100% sure yet what the long-term impact is going to be on employment rates um, across service sectors. As we started to see in some states, um, you know, hospitality and, you know, restaurants and, and other things start to open up and people starting to go back to work um, and then having to shut down again um, just creates a lot of confusion and adds to the fear um, and, you know, insecurities that we all feel, um, whether you have, whether we have a disability or not. Um, my, my bigger concern long-term is that sort of the, the false starts and quite honestly, um, the, the lack of concerted effort on the part of Congress through the various stimulus packages to really think about people with disabilities and the services and supports needed to live and work um, safely in communities has created, I think, a significant crisis that it's going to take a very long time for us to work our way out of unless something is done relatively quickly. Um, so, you know, podcasts live forever, but, you know, as of today, <laughs> which is uh, July 27th on Monday, we are still waiting to hear what the Senate's package for is going to be and whether or not it will um, it include services and supports that can help jumpstart the service delivery system um, in a way that is desperately needed. Um, without that, people with disabilities will be significantly impacted in terms of their ability to maintain jobs they already have, um, to return to jobs that they may have temporarily lost but are going to need some retraining and supports to um, get back to when we figure out whatever the new normal is, um, which is not even, you know, factoring in the, the fact that people with disabilities are likely to work at half the rate as the general population before they're even was a pandemic. Um, there are many, many, many people out of work right now, and um, and that's going to have a, a significant impact um, ensuring that people with disabilities have everything they need to have the competitive edge um, to enter back into the workforce um, is going to be needed to even maintain the gains that we've had so far. Programs such as the Paycheck Protection Program have only been modestly successful in mitigating these effects. Why has that been the case? And what do we need to do to help employees with disabilities retain and regain employment? So the Paycheck Protection Program, um, I'm, I'm going to link this back to the service providers, um, the, the agencies that are providing services. Um, in our survey, um, we did ask folks you know, did you apply for a PPP loan? Why or why not? And if you did, were you successful? Um, only 50% of providers of employment services applied for a PPP loan. Some of the reasons that 50% did not were a lot of fear and a lot of questions in the early stages about, you know, would I be able to pay this back? Um, the, just the sheer paperwork and volume of um, information that needed to be um, provided in order to receive one of these loans um, for many organizations um, that was just not, they couldn't halt providing services 
to the extent that they would have needed to be able to pull that paperwork together just to be able to apply. But of the 50% who did apply, only 45% were successful. Um, and so, you know, when you sort of do the math there, that basically means 23% of employment services providers received PPP loans. Um, that's pretty small. Interestingly, while the, the PPP program really was supposed to be targeted at smaller businesses, um, at least in our survey, we found that if you were a provider with under 50 employees, um, those were the folks least likely to have applied for um, or to receive PPP funding. Um, and so some way, somehow, the program and implementation does not seem to have been um, designed in a way or decisions made um, in a way that actually get dollars to where they're needed most. Um, I'll also mention, and, and I know you asked specific about the PPP um, loans, but the unemployment benefit is another piece that has had a significant impact on um, service delivery um, in the sense that, you know, we know that job coaches and job developers, unfortunately, are not um, compensated <laughs> particularly highly. And, and the $600 a week benefit um, has meant for many of these individuals um, that they are receiving more of unemployment than they were working as a job coach. And so, you know, that's something that we're monitoring very closely in terms of, um, you know, people returning to work when those opportunities arise. So I, I had mentioned earlier um, about the early lack of vocational rehabilitation and Medicaid dollars flowing in the way that we're used to that may have resulted in um, you know, needing to lay folks off in the short term. Um, the PPP loan should have protected those individuals um, if, if agencies were successful in getting those dollars, um, but many were not. And so those layoffs um, or furloughs are likely to those positions are likely to remain open unless we figure out an equitable way of bringing folks back on um, and into the workforce. Um, what that means in terms of employees with disabilities, um, you know, again, for those employees with disabilities who rely on the supports of job coaches, um, you know, that you can quickly see how this can be a, a significant factor. Um, although I will say there are many people with disabilities who do not rely on these supports um, and have been impacted by um, the PPP loan or the lack, I should say, of those dollars getting to um, companies, particularly small businesses where they may be working. It took us two months shy of 10 years for the U.S. to get back to the level of unemployment prior to the 2007 through 2009 financial crisis. People are hoping for a, what they call a V-shaped recovery, but the employment consequences of this crisis could be with us for a long time to come. Tell us about APSI's longer-term thoughts. For example, what do you see as the need into 2021? So our immediate concern is to stabilize funding um, and to keep the employment services delivery system intact. Um, you know, I, I, we have a significant concern that um, providers that have had to temporarily close down or temporarily 
furlough employees, um, that that is going to not be a temporary situation unless we can get some fiscal relief to these organizations um, quickly. Uh, and so just stabilizing um, the field I, is absolutely our first priority. That being said, um, it was not an adequately funded service system before the pandemic. Um, we were not making the gains that we would like to make. In employment for people with disabilities has hovered around 30% for a very long time um, without significant increases in gains, um, despite many gains in other areas like access to um, better equipment and, and technology and, and training programs and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so, you know, well, well, return, keeping what we have is important um, and, and is the ultimate priority right now. Um, there's also a recognition that what we had prior to COVID-19 was not sufficient. Um, and so the, the inequity in the system is only going to be compounded um, as we move forward. I, the other thing APSI is looking at and really paying a lot of attention to is this notion of having to deliver services in a different way, um, the shift to remote supports, um, making sure that providers have um, access uh, to good technical assistance and training around how to do that effectively, um, also ensuring that um, there is equitable access to technology for um, people with disabilities, um, not just having devices in hand, um, but also broadband issues and, and all of these other things that um, we know are a concern that become a barrier when um, your, your support system has to be delivered through some sort of a remote um, computer-based or telephone-based um, system. So, so that's something that we're looking at and see a lot of work is going to need to be done. Um, it, who knows how long it's going to be before we're at a place where we have a um, vaccine that is readily available for all citizens. Um, until then, we certainly see that people with disabilities are going to need um, need additional protections and supports. And part of that is going to mean how do we provide services in a remote um, capacity. And then the other thing that APSI is really taking a very close look at, because I, I think, you know, this particular moment, it's not just COVID-19 that is a significant crisis right now. We, we have seen so much um, around um, what is happening to people of color in this country. And um, I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that people with disabilities of color are the least likely to be employed in this country. Um, and so as we work to move forward to figure out what our service system is going to be um, in whatever the new normal is that, that we come out on the other side of this with, we have to have an intentionality around ensuring that we are um, advocating for um, those who are the most impacted. Um, we, we're, we're certainly a community that understands concepts of universal design and what helps um, those most significantly impacted ultimately helps everybody, but we have not not done the work that we need to do historically um, in terms of ensuring that people of color um, with disabilities are front and center in our advocacy to make sure that um, services and supports are, are available as we look to rebuild the system. I feel like this has been a real doom and gloom interview. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's it. It's it's my fault for asking the questions I've asked. But uh, what are possibly some causes for optimism? What are some positive outcomes that you see on the horizon or are, are hoping for? So I would say up until the last week and a half, I've been annoyingly Pollyanna-ish when I talk to people about the opportunities that I see um, for just personal and professional reasons. Um, this package four has me kind of in the dumps at the moment. So I apologize for the extent to which I've been a little doom and gloom. Um, but I, I will say there's a lot of really good things that have happened um, from an employment first perspective um, that we can build on. So people with disabilities remained in the workforce during a significant crisis and played a critical role. Um, and so the way that we think about the contributions of people with disabilities in the workforce, I think, has shifted and is something that we can continue to build on. Um, also, people with disabilities have been able to fill open positions. Um, and that's that's partly because people with disabilities have um, are, are prepared and, and able and and also in in some cases is because of some of the partnerships that have been um, developed between uh, particularly supported employment providers and business sectors um, where when you see you know the Amazons of the world suddenly needing to hire a bunch of people um, to fill their supply chain um, because that's where all the business goes and they know that they have great partners and supported employment providers who know um, know how to get people with disabilities who are ready and able and willing um, into those positions quickly. There's actually been an interesting win-win and, and some feedback from the business sector um, in seeing supported employment providers in particular as a um, as a partner in helping to rebuild the economy. Um, having job coaches who really understand and have built relationships with these businesses um, be in a position of onboarding new um, employees has allowed businesses to focus in other areas. Um, and so that really has been a win-win all around. Um, I think there are some other things that are going to take a little bit longer to piece and part out um, as we move forward. Um, but one of the things that I'm hopeful for um, as, as someone who really believes strongly in, in employment first and what we, we mean by that is um, we've exposed some things that have been difficult to talk about um, before. Um, in, even down to what do we define as work? Um, and when we think about choice and and equity, there are, you know, there are pockets of of individuals who have been served, for example, by facility-based um, pre-vocational training programs who have been under the assumption that they were working because that's what they were told that they were employees. Um, and then when this pandemic hit and some of those pre-vocational training programs had to close down, all of a sudden they realized, oh no, I, I actually wasn't an employee because my 
employer wasn't paying into unemployment or, or other benefits, and so I'm not eligible for that. Um, and so it really, it, it forces us as a system to, to talk about what we mean by employment um, and to think about the equitable, you know, piece of what it means to be part of the labor force in this country, which has to mean being eligible for the same level of protections that all other employees are eligible for. Um, so the extent to which we, as, as the data is going um, to show, I'm sure as we move forward, um, the disproportionate impact of people with disabilities who are not eligible for things like unemployment um, and, and what that's going to mean in terms of their, their fiscal outcomes. You know, we're only beginning to scratch the surface of that. And so that sounds a little doom and gloom. But the positive, I think, is that we, we are in a really unique position right now where we had a system that everyone I think could acknowledge was doing the best it could with the limited resources that we were given, um, but it wasn't the system we all knew we needed. But figuring out how to make those changes is really difficult, um, but we've had a significant disruption. Um, and so I'm really hopeful that as we move forward, we are doing it in a way that is looking at what do we mean when we say real work, real pay for people with disabilities, and that our emphasis is on ensuring that these are the outcomes that we work on moving forward, um, equitably getting people with disabilities into real jobs with real pay, with real benefits, with real protections. Um, and and being able to have some honest conversations about what that is and what that isn't. Um, so to me, from an employment first perspective, that that is a that's a positive. Um, that's something I'm excited to work on um, and to to build moving forward. Tell us about APSI's national provider survey. What does APSI hope to accomplish with the information? And you pointed out that you aren't the only ones um, doing this this kind of work. What are some other information sources people might check out? I have to give a huge kudos to Anchor um, in particular, who was, um, I think, the first um, to put information out about the um, disability service delivery system um, and the impact of COVID. Um, and there are more and more organizations that are doing this work um, every day. From APSI's perspective, we really wanted to look very specifically at employment, um, which is a, a piece and part of the broader conversation around um, disability providers and services. Um, but it, you know, in a hierarchy of needs, our, our concern as APSI is that um, employment potentially becomes um, the last thing we think about. Um, and that's concerning for a number of reasons. I, I will acknowledge that in the um, early weeks and months of the pandemic, um, we needed to see a huge focus on the healthcare system and ensuring people with disabilities had access to adequate healthcare and protections. And that's something we're still not 100% there. So, so not to take away from any of that work um, in any way, shape or form, but we also know that access to good healthcare is linked to employment. Um, and we know that the ability to be able to, to re 
boot our economy is getting people back to work and that that has to include people with disabilities. Um, so that's really the reason we set out on our um, survey. We collected data over a two week period of time in mid June, um, corresponding with the beginning of our, um, what became our virtual conference. Uh, we were not able to meet in person this year um, for obvious reasons. Um, but we, uh, it was not an APSI survey. We were, we tried to get it out as broadly as we possibly could. We ended up with over 600 responses during that two week period of time. Um, and we learned a lot. Um, but I would say what we learned most is what we didn't know we should be asking. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, we, we felt a real need, um, a real sense of urgency to get some information into the hands of um, con congressional staffers um, and congressional leadership to, to really define um, what, what is going on in the employment space. Um, dis the disability community as a whole has really, um, quite frankly been told that we get one ask <laughs> and you know agree as a group on what that ask is going to be um, which is which is a frustrating space to be in because disability um, is not a single easily defined thing there's tremendous diversity within the disability space and, and so coalescing around one ask um, it's a pretty impossible situation to be in but that being said we have agreed collectively as a disability um, community to advocate heavily for home and community-based services um, funding in package four. Um, that has been the rallying cry. Um, from an employment, from a disability perspective, I should say, um, disability employment perspective, HCBS funding is only a small piece of what drives disability employment. And part of our concern is even if that HCBS funding increase does get to states, will it trickle down so that employment providers see the impact of that and are able to access those funds? And so that, um, that really was the impetus of doing the survey for us is to be able to get to raise awareness of that piece of it that certainly employment is part of um, HCBS. Um, often not an acknowledged part, um, but but is is a part of it, and that we want to make sure that there's some level of intentionality around employment for people with disabilities um, as something that we need Congress to focus on. Um, so that that's where we started. Um, I think the information that we gathered in a relatively short period of time was very eye-opening for us. Um, but even now, as I talk about the outcomes of the survey, you know, knowing that this data was now collected five weeks ago, it's already out of date. Um, so we actually will be resurveying folks. Um, we're going to do a second survey um, in August. Um, we are anticipating unfortunately that um, some of the positives might not look quite so positive um, you know when we look at the outcomes two months out from the original data that we collected um, and and so but but it's something we feel that we need to do regardless of what happens in package four um, which we should hopefully know by the time that the survey goes out um, this is a long-term crisis um, 
that there are no quick and easy answers to recovery and we want to be doing everything we can as an APSI community to provide real data and real stories um, that can help inform policy decisions um, as we move forward. Well, Julie, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us. I think we've covered a ton of ground on this and, and you've definitely given us a lot to think about going forward. Thank you for your time. This has been great. You've been listening to Yes to Employment, a podcast that seeks to improve competitive integrated employment outcomes for transition-aged youth and young adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Today we spoke with Julie Christensen, the Director of Policy and Advocacy at APSI. For more about APSI, visit APSI.org. To read APSI's preliminary report, Impact of COVID-19 on Disability Employment Services and Outcomes. On the results of their survey, visit apsi.org slash COVID-19-impact-survey. A more thorough survey and analysis will follow in September, so be on the lookout. For more about Yes to Employment, including show notes, links to the resources discussed, a complete transcript, and a schedule of episodes, visit www yes to employment.org slash podcast. You can subscribe through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app to have the series delivered automatically to your device so you never miss an episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a rating on iTunes. Ratings will help us get the series in front of more listeners. Yes to Employment is a production of the Youth Employment Solutions Center, the National Training and Technical Assistance Center that serves as a hub of information and expertise for the Partnerships in Employment, or PIE, state projects. The YES Center is a collaboration of TASH and Transcend. You can learn more about TASH at TASH.org and more about Transcend at Transcend.org. That's T-R-A-N-S-C-E-N dot org. You can receive updates from the YES Center on this podcast and our other activities by following us on Facebook or on Twitter at yes to employment Partnerships in Employment is a series of seed grants funded by the Administration for Community Living's Administration on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, made to states for the purpose of transforming state disability support systems to competitive integrated employment. AIDD is dedicated to ensuring that individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families are able to fully participate in and contribute to all aspects of community life in the United States and its territories. Music for Yes to Employment is an original composition and performance by Sonny Seferati, the co-director and autistic self-advocacy mentor at The Musical Autist. You can learn more about The Musical Autist at www.themusicalautist.org. Be sure to keep Yes to Employment on your list. We'll have another episode on competitive integrated employment for you in the near future. Thank you.